The fifth and final memo from the Office of Management and Budget on meeting the goals outlined in the May 2021 Cyber Executive Order is out and may be the most daring. OMB is initiating a big change to how agencies buy and vendors develop commercial software. It could set the tone for decades to come. Chris Darusha is the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. He tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about why this memo is more than just another cyber mandate. Why are we doing this, I think, is that we want everybody to be truly adopting secure development practices, not for the sake of adopting them, but because security is an enabler to our future, the future of everything digital. And if we don't build secure software, it's not going to do what we want it to do, right? We're not going to achieve our purposes and goals of using the technology or completing our mission. That's the whole point. It's not a requirement for requirement's sake. This is an enabler to prosperity and growth, and it's crucial. And it is good for all of us. And we really just want to ensure that people are thinking about this that way, that it is This is something that they want and need and is good for them, not a new compliance requirement that isn't going to have any value or benefit, right? And and I think that just having the right mentality and taking the time, if you do already understand that and live that ethos, to help share that with others in your organization so that they don't look at it as something new and burdensome, but they look at it as something that is critical like they would in looking at their vehicle, having good seat belts and airbags and brakes, right? Like we need people to start understanding and thinking about technology this way when you think about security. And so this put a really fantastic framework together. We'll continue to determine best implementation practices and best practices that are starting to come out too. I'm excited about that. And and this will be a, a really positive journey that we're all embarking on together. Let's discuss some of the highlights of the software security memo and some of the deadlines that agencies have over the next six or nine months. We really tried to map out a series of steps that allow us to mature and prepare for implementing this framework and ensuring that everybody's really adopting the practices. And so we segmented things out in kind of three, four, six, nine months based windows of taskings. You know, for example, asking agencies to inventory all of their software that would be requirements in the memo within 90 days and in doing things like OMB posting instructions for any extensions or waivers that, that an agency might need to submit in also in that 90 day window. And then kind of building from there and ensuring that agency CIOs are developing consistent processes to communicate requirements to vendors, to all the appropriate folks in their agency, they're going to have to be involved with their collecting attestation letters at some point um, or providing guidance to vendors and ensuring trainings occurring in all the right places. So, you know, we really kind of lay it all out throughout the memo where we, where we build out to, and we don't actually request any of the attestation letters back for about nine months. And we even start with critical software as another prioritizing mechanism and then a year for the rest. So that we can learn throughout this entire process, Jason, and kind of continue to um, develop it and, and put new guidelines and guidance out there as we go. You mentioned this kind of the, if you will, where you hear this often in technology, the crawl, walk, run idea of software uh, security. 
When you talk about critical software, you're defining that how again. I, I know there's a there is a definition in, in either law or regulation, but but maybe give folks an idea of what you all when you talk about critical software, what do you mean? So Jason, we actually defined critical software in a memo that we released at last year, M twenty one thirty. And so NIST put a whole bunch of guidelines together on secure development practices around that. And we gave clear definitions of where we were starting for, for critical software. So that's all clearly defined and out there. And now you know, this memo is really building on those efforts. I want to touch upon this idea of self-attestation. Of all the things when I read through the memo, that was probably the one that stood out to me. And, and I know it's just a minimum level of security. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor. But we've seen self-attestation with an example I give you is NIST 800-171 with uh, controlled unclassified information. And we've seen that that just didn't work well. DOD specifically has been so concerned they developed their own set of metrics and a whole set of standards called CMMC because companies said, oh, no, we protected the data. And then in the end, they actually didn't. Why did you start with self-attestation and versus something a little more rigorous? I, I did was pleased to see that you do mention in there. If you need a third-party assessment, lean on FedRAMP, three PAOs, versus trying to, again, do what DOD did, which is develop a whole set of different approaches. But but give me a, a little bit of background behind why self-attestation versus anything else. You use the key word, start with. And I, mean, I, I would agree that self-attestations you know, do have their limits and also maybe even come with some risks, like it could create a, a compliance mentality. But I also think that they're absolutely the right way to start with something as new as the secure software development framework, as everybody's learning the taxonomies around that, as folks are learning how to do a sound third-party assessment on all of those practices. There's, there's some new practices in there. Again, we've already mentioned one, SPOMs, right? And that's in this framework, and that's a piece of it. But that's, as we know, something that's still really maturing and being built out. And like, how do you assess what is good there? Is, is a question that is being answered as we go. But again, as we talked about already with the approach of maturing agencies' readiness to that these requirements are being followed, it's the same thing. We, we want to make sure that we're learning all of the lessons as we get into it. Um, if there's a risk situation where uh, an agency feels like they need to have that third-party assessment right now, again, um, that is fine. We we we're, we encourage that in the memo that, that that's a decision that they can make now and they should feel free to do that. But we weren't ready to kind of say that that is what we need in every case. And and that, you know, I, I think is the right call. And we'll continue to assess that decision as we mature and learn more and move down the road. Is there any concern from your perspective that not just it becomes a compliance issue where I'm just going to check the box and say I did it, but what's the teeth or, or is there something that OMB and, and working with GSA and maybe the Federal Acquisition Regulations Council is doing to add maybe a little bit of teeth to it that say, if you self-attest to meeting that and then if you don't, what can happen to you? Is, is there any teeth that you're thinking about or that you can talk about? Yeah, well, look, I mean, just start with the fact that, I mean, I personally, I think most vendors take self-attestation pretty seriously. I mean, they know that eventually they're going to have to turn in that homework or that they could be evaluated by a third party and they're going to be held accountable if they are not actually doing what they have attested to and signed off on, on and told the federal government that they are doing. So there, you know, there will be consequences there. 
But, you know, also another thing that you mentioned, right, like this approach is really allowing us to learn where the gaps are and, and keep moving. And we're going to be situated because there will be FAR rules that come out and there's going to be binding requirements in, in all federal contracts around these practices. It's going to take some time, right? And, and this memo is really about getting agencies focused and, and learning and maturing uh, their practices so that when those become requirements everywhere, that we're going to have learned a lot and be more mature and ready to, you know, ready for that moment. Chris Darusha is the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out all of our cybersecurity coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.